1: I'm Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here as we kick off a brand new week. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Follow me on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I can be reached at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. So send me a note and let me know what's on your mind. All right, coming up later this week on the show, we're going to be joined by the great Dean Cain. Dean Cain, the actor, of course, most famous for playing Superman. He is now out there doing some really important things. We're going to talk to him about Donald Trump, about politics, about Hollywood, about what he's doing now, so much more. The great Dean Kane, I cannot wait to talk to him. He's coming up later in the week. Also, next week, we're going to be joined by another great legendary actor, Ricky Schroeder. Ricky Schroeder won a Golden Globe at the age of nine or 10 years old for playing the uh, the son in The Champ. The movie *The Champ*, and then of course he went on to play in the the great sitcom *Silver Spoons* and do so many great, great things. And now he's dedicating so much of his life uh, to focusing on celebrating America's real heroes—not actors, not singers—Taylor <clears throat> Swift. Um, but real American heroes. And he's also focused on combating the dangers of online pornography, which is just incredibly destructive and dangerous. So Ricky Schroeder is going to join us here next week. I, I have to say, between Dean Kane and Ricky Schroeder, my little girl slash teenage self is screaming. <laughs> Okay. Screaming. So we're going to talk to these two gentlemen over the next couple of days here on the Monica Crowley podcast. And I cannot wait. And coming up today, a very special guest, Gavin Wax, who is the head of the New York Young Republicans Club. The reason we're going to go to him and we're going to do a deep dive with Gavin today about how we turn it around in the most... Difficult places in the country. Deep blue cities like New York, Chicago, Washington, San Francisco, Detroit, Atlanta. Guys, these are all uphill battles, but what Gavin is doing in New York is truly remarkable. Truly remarkable. He's beginning to turn things around. And again, Rome wasn't built in a day, so this is going to take time. But just because something is hard and looks so daunting doesn't mean we don't try. Gavin is not only trying, but he's executing brilliantly. He is going to be here in a couple of minutes. But first, the Monica Memo. While well, everybody is over here focused on uh, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey and their romance, is it real or is it a fake? And also, is Taylor Swift an op and is taylor swift going to be campaigning for joe biden which even the new york times yesterday had a story saying the biden white house is going to work with taylor swift with her eras tour in the fall and biden's going to be on stage with her etc this all assumes that joe biden is going to be the candidate but regardless of whom the Democrats put up, Taylor Swift is going to be out there campaigning. I mean, I don't think this is a big mystery here, guys. She came out for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in 2020. She put up that now famous or infamous picture of her with a plate of Biden-Harris cookies in 2020. So, You know, she is a Democrat. She has every right to be. I think it's highly misguided. But the Democrats, of course, are going to weaponize her. Of course they are. Now she's even more famous with her tour and the exposure via the NFL and the rest of it. I mean, there could be like an election season engagement and or wedding. We don't know. Um, But while everybody's attention is over there... With all of that, that's the bread and circuses that we are being fed. That goes back to Roman times. Bread and circuses, you keep the population distracted so they're not focused on the real stuff, the real evil, the real crimes going on by their leadership. So Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey... Uh, Highly entertaining, but meant to be that way, bread and circuses. On this show, we are focused on the actual evil and crimes going on, and also some positive things happening, okay? So the Monica memo is the rise of the deplorables. We are powerless no more, and we know it, which is why they are trying to crush us more than ever. 25 states are now backing Texas Governor Greg Abbott after he refused to bend to the Biden administration's bullying about the ongoing illegal immigrant crisis at the southern border. The Supreme Court ruled on January 22nd that federal border officials could cut the razor wire that the Texas National Guard was putting up along the Rio Grande River, also the boys in the Rio Grande River, to try to stop this human tsunami of illegal immigration. Uh, The Supreme Court said that the feds could cut the razor wire. That's all they said. They just vacated the Fifth Circuit while we're waiting for the ultimate decision to make it through the process. Um, And the Supreme Court said, look, the feds have jurisdiction over immigration. And if the feds felt like the razor wire impeded their ability to, quote, do their jobs, uh, then they could cut it down but they didn't order Texas to do or not do anything. So Texas now is continuing to put up the wire uh, and the feds are going in cutting it down, but, that Texas is still trying. But it doesn't mean that Texas must stop putting up these uh, impediments to the illegals. It just means that the feds can go in and and remove it if necessary. So right after the Supreme Court uh, made their ruling, Abbott announced that he is going to try to continue to uphold the law by allowing his state's National Guard to continue all of these operations, especially in the high-traffic illegal crossing area like Eagle Pass, Texas, where we see so much of the video of just thousands and 10,000 people a day coming across to be processed in Eagle Pass, Texas. Abbott is also arguing that Texas has a constitutional right to defend itself against the 10 million immigrants, illegals who have crossed into the country under Joe Biden. So he's saying Texas as a state has a constitutional right, and not just right, but duty, to try to stop, prevent, protect against, invasion. Immediately, uh, Greg Abbott got a ton of support from uh, President Trump, from House Speaker Mike Johnson, Vivek Ramaswamy, members of Congress, and as I said, more than uh, two dozen state leaders who have come forward saying we're backing them up. And you also have states like Florida under DeSantis who are considering, if they haven't yet already, sent their state's National Guard to back up the Texas National Guard on the border. We've got large groups who are traveling toward the southern border to demand action from the Biden team against this wide open border flood of illegal immigrants. It's being called the take our border back convoy. Got a ton of truckers heading to the border there already. And they have said, look, we're gathering peacefully. And our our objective is to send a message to local, state and federal officials to close this border and also to deport the 10 million who are here just in the last three years, okay? So the convoy is on its way. A lot of trucks are already there. Just a warning to everybody going down there. I know that all of these truckers have uh, America's best interests at heart. They want to support Texas. They want to support the National Guard. Um, And they do want to send this message, and they will be peaceful. But keep in mind January 6th. Keep in mind, I mean, if you're going down there, God bless you. Thank you uh, for the solidarity and the messaging. But keep in mind that the feds mix in with these kinds of crowds to create a false flag, to infiltrate, to try to gain intelligence and information from all of us, and also to try to provoke a situation That will go violent, so therefore they have a reason, they've got a pretext to call us all domestic terrorists and get in there, strip away more of our freedoms, and imprison people as messaging events. So I would just warn you, if you're a part of this convoy, God bless you. We appreciate you so much, but be careful. Do not do or say anything that could feed into the hands of the federal government, the DOJ and FBI. We know that the FBI is not your friend. It's not our friend. It's working for the other side. It is not working for you. So just be mindful of that, um, not just with this convoy, but with anything you know they have pushed us and pushed us and pushed us to the brink and they can't believe we haven't snapped yet okay so they they will do or say anything to try to instigate a situation where they could get some of us to snap and then therefore use it as a pretext to strip more of our freedoms call more of us domestic terrorists imprison us bankrupt us and and really uh, ram it to us so Just a word to the wise is sufficient here, right? Speaking of people hitting their limit, Arizona, my birth state. I was born at Fort Huachuca, Arizona as an army brat. Well, you know, we cannot win the presidency without Arizona. As Arizona goes, so goes the presidency and the country. We finally have some real movement in the state of Arizona in a good way. Over the weekend, the Arizona GOP selected a new Trump-endorsed chairwoman. Her name is Gina Suabata, and she had previously been a senior advisor on elections for the Arizona Senate. So she has been all over the elections and election integrity. She wants one-day voting. She wants paper ballots. She wants voter ID. She wants signature matching. All of the common sense stuff she has been working on in Arizona, and she is now uh, the head of the Arizona State Republican Party, which is fantastic. This comes on the heels of the leaked audio recording of Carrie Lake um, being approached by the previous GOP chair, Jeff DeWitt, who has since resigned, um, essentially coming to her on behalf of, quote, very powerful people back east to bribe her not to run for the Senate. They did not want any America First leaders. They didn't want Trump. They still don't want Trump. They don't want Carrie Lake. They don't want Matt Gates. They don't want Marjorie Taylor Greene. No America First folks. So they attempted to bribe her via Jeff DeWitt, and it it exploded. Uh, And the timing on this was perfect. So I don't know who leaked the tape. Maybe it was Carrie. Uh, Maybe it was somebody around Carrie. I don't know. Um, But it came out a couple of days before this Arizona GOP meeting, And Jeff DeWitt is now gone. They forced his hand, forced him out, and now you have an excellent person as head of the Arizona GOP. She was on Bannon's uh, war room yesterday and said when she came in a couple of days ago, she took a look at the books and actually there was no accounting done for the Arizona GOP for like years. So she said she's got to get a handle on this and turn it around in the next nine months before the election. And again, Arizona is a critical, a linchpin state for the presidency, for the country. We've got to get Carrie Lake elected senator from there. So Gina Sobata, she is excellent. She has her work cut out for her. So let's all hope and pray that she can turn this around. The other good news is that the RNC is meeting this week in Las Vegas. Charlie Kirk and Turning Point are there to put the pressure on the 168 voting members of the RNC to finally get rid of Rana Romney McDaniel. She needs to go. Guys, she needs to go. She is pathetic. She is a loser. She's got a history of losing. And the books there are almost as bad as the books in Arizona. The National Republican Organization, the RNC, basically has no money. I think they've got like $7 million to the Democrats, like, I don't know, $50 million? Because Rana has run it into the ground. She has spent money on all kinds of BS, from her manicures to flowers at events. No, 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 no. We are in a war for the future of the country. You cannot have a leader in there like Ronna Romney McDaniel, who's part of the Uni Party, who is not America First, and not particularly pro-Donald Trump. And forget about that. Just be where the people are. The people are America First. The people are MAGA, okay? So if you are not that, get out of the way. The RNC votes for their chairperson in secret. I think that should change as well. I mean, we got to see public votes. How are you, as your National Committee chairperson from the state of whatever, Indiana, how are you voting for RNC chair? We want to know. Transparency and accountability. But we got to bounce Rana. I'm sorry, we cannot go another day like this. So Charlie Kirk is out there putting pressure on the RNC members. Uh, Ronna right now is under a lot of pressure, and rightfully so. I mean, if she were spending money like a drunken sailor, but still turning elections around and getting uh, Republicans and America First folks uh, winning, that would be a separate issue. But she's not. She's not. So she's got to go. We have no more time to waste. Okay, so there is a lot of positivity out there that is going on. Um, So we've got a lot of positive developments happening. The tide is beginning to turn. But guys, our enemies, both uh, external and internal, are really on the march because they know we are on the march. They see this convoy at the border. They see the poll numbers on the illegal immigration crisis, upwards of, I think, 70% now, disapprove of Biden's handling of the border and are completely outraged and it's not just us it's uh, black voters Latino voters in the inner cities who are being decimated by the tsunami of illegal immigration we're going to talk to Gavin Wax here out of New York City about this because he's leading the charge to turn New York City around it's doing extraordinary work he's coming up here in just a couple of minutes but You know, we've got a real opportunity here because the situation is so catastrophic. They see those poll numbers. They see the convoy. They see what's going on in Arizona and some other states turning it around. Again, it doesn't happen overnight, but we're making real progress now, guys. They see all of this happening. And, you know, they're, they're, they're panicked, even though they control all of the levers of power. Speaking of the enemies within, speaking her native language and violating her oath of office, Ilhan Omar, also known as the Muslim Brotherhood's representative for Minnesota, expressed her allegiance to a foreign country the other day. She was talking in Somali, and she said she is first Somali, second Muslim, and then, well, no mention of America whatsoever. She was speaking to a Somali group and she vowed to quote, protect Somalia over Americans while she is serving in Congress. She said, quote, the U.S. will do what we want, nothing else. They must follow our orders. That is how we safeguard the interest of Somalia. Again, no mention in her entire speech, in her native language, about the United States of America, which she is bound by her oath to protect, to protect and support the Constitution of the United States. That is her oath. That gets completely blown out the window. She has affirmed her fealty to Somalia and to Islam. So based on this alone, never mind her raging anti-Semitism, based on this alone, Speaker Johnson must expel her from the U.S. Congress. If he and the rest of the Congress could expel George Santos, Republican from Long Island, over nothing, well, then they can certainly expel Ilhan Omar for expressing uh, her allegiance to a foreign country and not to the United States. This is textbook treason, so they must expel her. And the other big thing about our enemies being on the march Over the last couple of days, we've had three brave U.S. service uh, people killed in Jordan, another 25 injured as they slept by Iranian proxies who sent a drone into Jordan, into our base, and caught our service people unawares while they slept the killed soldiers were Sergeant William Jerome Rivers, 46 years old, Specialist Kennedy Ladon Sanders, 24 years old, and Specialist Brianna Alexandria Moffat, 23 years old. They were all out of a unit out of Georgia. Okay. Um, this is beyond belief. You know, Donald Trump was all about bringing our troops home, getting us out of endless wars. Well, the military-industrial complex and the deep state are all about getting us back into endless wars. And so we have uh, these service people who are assigned all over the world, assigned to the Middle East, to hotbeds like uh, the Middle East. We also got an announcement from the Pentagon yesterday that 3,000 Americans are on the ground in Yemen. So here we go again, another massive uh, war, probably, world war, because Iran is backed by China and Russia. So if we're going against the Iranians, and look, nobody is uh, excusing the Iranians here. They are a terrorist regime, and there need to be consequences for killing American service people. Okay, but you're going to provoke a wider war, which is what they want. I think they believed that Russia, Ukraine would generate the world war that they've been seeking to profit out of. And when it didn't materialize, they turned their attention to the Middle East. Well, now you've got dead Americans, just as we had dead Americans in Afghanistan, with Joe Biden looking at his watch. Um, But American soldiers being killed while they slept in the Middle East. This is, of course, completely disgusting, but it's also totally predictable given the absolute weakness of this president, Joe Biden, where he cannot even form a sentence. The other day, he referred to Donald Trump as, quote, the sitting president in the middle of slurring his way through a speech. U.S. servicemen and women are getting killed. Our country and the world are in utter meltdown. And this corrupt, demented clown can't form a sentence and refers to Trump as, quote, the sitting president. No, man, if Trump were president, we would not be in this nightmare. Our enemies on the march because they see the weakness. So while we have good news that we are turning it around uh, across this country and feeling our own power, uh, the weakness is bringing devastation, destruction, horror, and death right to our doorsteps. You know, Joe Biden, every time he's asked about Iran or, or illegal immigrants, he's got one word don't, don't, you know, whenever he's asked on it. Well, what do you say to the Iranians? Don't. What do you say to illegal immigrants? Don't. Don't come to the border. It, everybody knows that he is a clown and a puppet and also completely crippled and compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, by all of the blackmail, by the Chinese Communist Party, and by the deep state that has reams on him. Come on. So when he says don't to America's enemies, they just all blow it off because they certainly are doing what he's saying don't do. Of course they're doing it. And by the way, all of these countries, all of America's enemies, they would be remiss if they didn't because the American president is so weak and they have national interests to protect and advance. So, of course, they're going to take this window of opportunity while the United States is weak to do it. Of course they are. They would be remiss if they didn't. And I have a feeling it's only going to get worse before it gets better. We had a known terrorist... I mean, there are hundreds, ac- actually more than a thousand now, known terrorists who have come across the border who have been uh, encountered, apprehended uh, by Border Patrol over the last three years. One, though, got away, one of the gotaways, got away, and he's a member of Al-Shabaab, which is the Somali Ham Ilhan Omar, the Somali terrorist organization that has links to all the other terrorist organizations, but he was roaming the country for one year before he was arrested in Ilhan Omar's state of Minnesota just a couple of days ago, but otherwise allowed to roam. God knows how many others are roaming the country. Are we going to see a terrorist attack? Probably. Probably multiple attacks and multiple different different locations, all taking out hundreds, if not thousands, maybe millions of Americans, maybe you and me, God forbid. But all of this blood is on Joe Biden's hands, just like the blood of these three brave servicemen and women in Jordan over the last couple of days, just like uh, the, the Americans who died in Afghanistan. All of this blood, the blood of Americans who have been killed or injured uh, by illegal immigrants committing heinous crimes in this country, all of that blood is on Joe Biden's hands. And it is a good thing we are making progress and that the deplorables that were on the rise because we are going to need all hands on deck guys all hands on deck all right let's hit a break when we come back we're going to do do a deep dive into turning this around in the most difficult places in the country Deep blue cities, urban areas where the Democrat machines have a lock and have had a lock for decades. It is not impossible. Difficult, yes, but not impossible. And we all rise to a challenge. We're going to talk to the great Gavin Wax on the other side. Sit tight.
0: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants
1: Well, I am so excited to have with us today Gavin Wax. Gavin is the 76th president of the New York Young Republicans Club, and he has completely reinvigorated it and actually almost single-handedly made New York a competitive state for us deplorables. We're going to talk to him about that. He's also the executive director of the National Constitutional Law Union. He's a columnist at townhall.com, so you can check out all of his work there. He's an ambassador for Turning Point USA, and his website is Wax. Dot com. You can follow him on Twitter slash X at Gavin Wax. And Gavin, I assume you're on True Social as well. Is that also Gavin Wax?
2: Yes, Gavin Wax, uh, everywhere, on all the social media, and uh, thank you for having me, Monica.
1: Oh, well, please, everybody, go follow him on all of his social media platforms and check out his great website uh, for all the information on Gavin, and it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you here. You know, I am based mostly in New York City, and as I always say, Gavin, to everybody when I say that, I'm like, pray for me. Like, whenever I go out and I'm giving speeches around the country, I'm like, yes, I live in New York City, pray for me. And everybody laughs, it gets a good hearty chuckle. Um, but you are almost single handedly changing the game. And of course, this is an uphill battle, but that doesn't mean we don't fight. So this is why I wanted to have you on the show, because you are doing incredible things in one of the deepest blue locations in the country, New York City. So let's start with, before we get to what you're doing, which is truly uh, remarkable, let's get into your background. Are you a native New Yorker? And how did you um, how did you develop your political values? Because I get that question for myself all the time, and I'm fascinated by people's story. How did you, are you native New Yorker, number one, and number two, how did you develop as a conservative?
2: Well, absolutely. Uh, I am a native New Yorker. Uh, originally, I uh, grew up in Queens and Long Island. I uh, went to school here in the city, uh, for college, uh, Baruch, uh, and uh, yeah, I've uh, been you know living here my whole life. I guess I'm a, a provincial yokel kind of in a way, but uh, uh, my political beliefs sort of Definitely, were a you know a non traditional path. I kind of was jumped around a bit. You know, I was always interested in politics growing up, and history, and current events, and you know, stayed on top of a lot of stuff. You know, when I was even you know very young, uh, my family, I guess, were kind of you know moderate, maybe JFK Dems. You know, a few Republicans, but not overtly political, not not super conservative by any means. Uh, they've certainly moved. Uh, to the right in recent years, kind of along with me and most of the country for that matter, at least the the sensible ones. But uh, I, I definitely started out, I guess, more of a, of a Democrat, you know, maybe kind of dabbled with more libertarian views, and then eventually uh, kind of, you know, began to embrace conservatism and eventually, uh, you know, the Trump movement, the ascendant Trump movement. Uh, so it was a political journey. And, you know, a lot of that was, you know, having more life experiences, you know, working, reading, you know, actually just You know, living a normal life and actually being exposed to the real world. I think uh, I think that's probably uh, what it what what it does it for most people who actually you know come to their senses. It's just you know being exposed to the realities uh, of everyday life and 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 growing up, so to speak. I think we have a lot of people, uh, particularly young people, or maybe uh, man children or adult children, who never really fully grow up, and as a result, their political views are kind of uh, stagnant and remain the same as they were when you know, when they were in high school or something like that. But I started getting involved on some local campaigns and races uh, in Queens and the outer boroughs, uh, you know, kind of ingratiating myself in in the local political scene, uh, going to these different Republican clubs and meetings and and working on campaigns as a volunteer. And uh, that just started, you know, slowly uh, growing, you know, year by year. And eventually, uh, you know, I took over the club. We were talking about that. And I was sort of, uh, the big springboard forward uh, for me politically in terms of uh, my activism and, and uh, you know, just getting involved on the ground.
1: Let me ask you this. Are you a natural contrarian? And the reason I ask is because when I get that question about, hey, Monica, you know, how did you become a conservative? Because I grew up in the orbit of New York City. I grew up in New Jersey, in the suburbs of New Jersey. And, um, you know, when I was growing up, Ronald Reagan was president so you know when I was a little girl um, and and sort of going into middle school Reagan was president and everything that he was saying and doing Gavin just sort of instinctively hit me as correct. So taking on the Soviet Union, limited government, cutting taxes. But of course, I was so young that I didn't understand the why he was correct until, of course, I I got older and started actually studying these things. Um, So it just sort of hit me as correct. And then I I began learning and absorbing and, of course, became full-blooded conservative. But I think from the time that I was very young... Instinctively, I was a conservative, but I was also a natural contrarian. If somebody is saying go this way, I'll go the other way. Not that I'm a rule breaker because I'm not, but if if the powers that be are telling me something, um, especially leftist powers that be, I want to go do the other thing. So would you describe yourself as that way as well, where sitting in New York City, you wanted to question everything that you were sort of being indoctrinated with and, and pummeled with, On a day to day basis?
2: Absolutely, to a degree. I mean, I was definitely always uh, someone who had a healthy degree of skepticism. I never accepted things on face value. You know, I was always questioning, wanting to learn more, you know, get to the truth. And, you know, a part of that is contrarian. And I think, you know, young people in general tend to be, uh, you know, more contrarian. And you look at politics over the decades, over the generations, when, you know, the establishment was more conservative, then you have a uh, the, the youth uh, are more contrarian to that. You know, you, you look back to the 50s and 60s, the counterculture was very, you know, leftist. I, th- I think going into the modern era, going into today, you know, as the institutions have become more left wing, you know, the real uh, counterculture, the real, you know, kind of underground counterculture youth movement is actually much more conservative, you know, not politically correct. Uh, maybe not, you know, traditionally conservative in many ways, but certainly not fully embracing the left. So I think we're seeing some changes there. And it means for me personally, you know, I definitely think I had some of that, you know, growing up in New York, for sure. I think I'm lucky enough that I missed uh, a lot of the, the craziness, the woke uh, agenda that really started to take off. I think just after I graduated uh, college, it really started to explode in a big way. I was seeing the beginnings of it, uh, but you know, I, I finished college before uh, Trump took office. And I think thereafter it really, they put it into high gear. Uh, but I, I think you know, just my upbringing in general. You know, I I was working you know from a very young age. I was working from 14. I worked in restaurants. I worked pretty much any job you can imagine, from delivery boy to bus boy to bar back to waiter uh, to you know a cash a uh, cashier. Uh, I worked on a factory floor. So uh, having that kind of real world experience, I think definitely uh, you know gave me a different outlook on life. I was raised partially by my grandmother, so I guess I had an old soul uh, kind of outlook uh, to the world as well. So I think a lot of those experiences really could shape people's uh, political orientation and direction. Certainly happened for me. And look, at the end of the day, New York City. You know, people think of it as this liberal hotbed. You know, I certainly didn't grow up on the Upper West Side. I probably would have had purple hair if I did. <laughs> you know, the areas I grew up in, you know, Queens and Long Island. You know, they were much more. Uh, Middle of the road, uh, in some respects, very conservative. You know, Northeast Queens right now is represented uh, by a Republican in the city council. She's a stalwart conservative. uh, And that's where I grew up. You know, there's working class communities there, you know, very salt of the earth type people. Uh, And, you know, going to I went to, uh, you know, Baruch, I went to a city college. A lot of the people that I was there with They weren't exactly your typical trust fund NYU kids that, you know, had a silver spoon in their mouth and a chip on their shoulder because of it. You know, the people I went to school with, uh, you know, they were all kind of hustlers. You know, they were trying to make it, you know, many many of them first gen, many of them people didn't come from. A ton of money, but they really wanted to make it, uh, you know, whether in finance or media or whatever field they happen to be pursuing. So, you know, it was kind of that New York uh, kind of entrepreneurial spirit that I was surrounded with at school uh, because of the school I went to. And I think, you know, all those things combined definitely shaped my outlook for sure. And I think there's a lot of other people like me uh, in New York, believe it or not, maybe they're not as open uh, as me politically because of the circumstances, you know, cancel culture and, and corporate America and all that. But Uh, You'd be surprised how many of us uh, there actually are. And it's a big city. And even if we're not the biggest majority, uh, you take 33 percent of, you know, eight, nine million. You're still talking about a good chunk of people.
1: You know, it's a really important point. I want everybody to understand, because I think we all tend to look at these deep blue cities. And states, for that matter, but particularly cities, and think it's monolithic, democrat, left wing, communist. And that is not true. And as you describe in New York City, you know, there are communities, there are pockets of real uh, conservatism in these places. The problem is that they just get completely swamped um, because they're outnumbered. But they do exist in these cities. And I want to get into that. Um, In just a minute, you know, uh, when you're talking about changing cities like this, um, what I have found, and you can tell me if this has been your experience as well, there are a lot of people who vote Democrat because, of course, they've always been Democrat. Their parents were Democrats, grandparents were Democrats. What they don't seem to understand is that the current Democrat Party is not the party of Bill Clinton or Franklin Roosevelt of, you know, your parents and your grandparents. This is a wholly Marxist uh, party now. And so like in New York City, for example, you've got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is a an out-socialist, which is just a euphemism for communist. Um, And you've got city council members, um, you've got Jamal Bowman, uh, I guess. Uh, There are people in the city councils who are just out-Marxist, like straight-up Marxist. So the people who are voting Democrat in these cities, regardless of ethnic group or whatever, they're, they're voting because they've always voted that way, but they have not recognized that their own party has turned so radical Left that they are Marxists and, and that they are contributing with their vote every two, four, or six years, they're contributing to the radicalization of their own party and they don't kind of put it all together. So, I guess my question to you is how do we go about educating people who have been lifelong Democrats? who are politically Democrat, but also cultural Democrats. And Gavin, we see this all the time in New York City. I mean, I know a ton of people who are like, oh, well, I'm culturally Democrat. So I just vote that way because, you know, social issues or whatever. How do we kind of reach those people to educate them about the radicalization of their own party and how they are voting for their own destruction?
2: No, I, I think it's a great question. I think you're right. I think there's a big chunk of the Democrat voting base that you could kind of lump into this sort of low information, ancestral Democrat voters. And, you know, Republicans have a similar cohort on our side. It works both ways. But in New York City, for sure, there's a lot of people that just vote Democrat kind of by instinct because of, you know, their upbringing and what they remembered and what they think of as being the Democrat party, uh, the Democrat party of yesteryear, a party that, you know, I've had many members of my family ascribe to, but they certainly don't, uh, you know, uh, hold to the views of the current Democrat party, whether they realize it or not. And, you know, I think part of this is happening naturally. I think the Democrats uh, in many ways have overplayed their hand, particularly in, you know, one party city and uh, cities and states like New York, where, uh, they haven't had any real political or electoral competition. They've been able to really go wild uh, running to the left on a whole range of issues from social issues to the economy, to foreign policy, you name it. And I think that sort of radicalism uh, is slowly being you know, exposed just through the natural order of things, the natural course of events. and And people are starting to slowly wake up to it, especially as the quality of life has deteriorated significantly and people feel it uh you know in their pocketbooks, they they see it in the air, they see it on the streets, they see, you know, a a real tangible visceral uh decline in the city, you know, it it, it starts to get them, you know, thinking, starts to get them start asking questions. You know, hey, maybe these Democrats are not what I thought they always were. You know, maybe they don't know really how to know how to run things. Maybe uh they are as radical as i beginning I'm beginning to notice, see it here. And look, I think part of this also falls on Republicans and conservatives to really present uh, an alternative vision, uh, you know, not just for the city and state, but for the world as a whole. You know, the Democrats, you know, you mentioned AOC. You know, they paint these very utopian, picturesque uh, worldviews. You know, the Green New Deal and all that. And it could be as fanciful and ridiculous as the Green New Deal, but at least they're painting a vision. I think in many t- uh, many cases, Republicans tend to get uh, tend to be very reactive, and they they simply respond, and they simply say we're against this rather than being for something. They don't really present a clear vision uh, of the future under their governance or what they want to build for America. And I think that's beginning to change. I think the Trump movement, I think the MAGA movement, this populist movement, however you want to kind of describe it, I think that's really changing uh, the name of the game in, in, in the American body politic. I think it's certainly changing the landscape, especially in urban America, even a place like New York, you've seen some of the largest swings to the right. Uh, anywhere in the country outside of, say, the Rio Grande Valley, being in places like New York, where you've had a lot of working class communities, whether they're white or or Hispanic or even black and Asian, they've shifted uh, considerably to the right, uh, you know, as a percentage because of Donald Trump and his sort of populist message that really resonates, I think, in a place like New York City, in the outer boroughs where he's from. Uh, And I think that brand of Republican politics can really wake up a lot of Democrats, many of whom think, The Republican Party is still this stodgy, you know, country club uh, mode of politics uh, when it's not anymore. It's actually a very different party. It's a party that really does stand up for the middle class and the working class of this country Mm -hmm. uh, against sort of this out of touch elite. And I think if we really lean into that, lean into that populism, that rhetoric, that 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 policy, uh, I think we can really make gains in a place like New York and turn things around. And I think the other thing you have to realize with a place like New York is. Uh, it's very cyclical. Uh, you know, you look at New York City's history; it has to get really, really bad before it gets better. You saw that, you know, with Rudy Giuliani, you know, becoming mayor after you know the crack epidemic of the 1980s and the crime wave and the riots and the Bronx is burning. Basically, the city was 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 completely collapsing. It took it took things getting that bad before it got better. And I think, sadly, that's the nature of urban politics in America, particularly New York. Uh, but we should never write off New York. You know, New York is. Uh, You know, it's still a place that, you know, defines the culture. Uh, It's the economic center of the country. Uh, It's where a lot of young professionals, members of my organization, get their start in the world. Uh, And it's a place we need to have a foothold uh, to really have a say. We can't just retreat from the cities. We can't play defense all the time. We should play offense. We should have a healthy uh, amount of concerted effort in a place like New York, because even on the margins, you win New York City by 33 percent. All of a sudden, uh, New York State is a state that we could be talking about. As being in play politically so I, i'm sure we'll get into that but that's sort of the long and short of it
1: yeah, it, you've made so many really critically important points there, Gavin. And, uh, you know, when you talk about deep blue areas, you're right, it has to sort of hit rock bottom before even the, the diehard Democrat voters there begin to vote to turn it around. And we saw that recently in San Francisco with the Soros DA, Chesa Bodin, who is, you know, the, the progeny of, you know, the weather underground <laughs> crowd. So he is a real Marxist radical and the people in, in San Francisco had had enough and they turned him out on a recall. So every once in a while, you will hit a wall and you will see a change, as you described with Rudy Giuliani as well. But the, the counterbalance to that argument is Chicago. So Chicago, which I think has the highest homicide rate in the country, um, and they had had enough of Lloyd Lightfoot and the quality of life issues and the crime out of control and the, the high cost of living. And They defeated her, but the problem was they turned around and all of these culturally Democrat voters or politically Democrat voters who do not understand now that the Democrat Party is a Marxist revolutionary party um, elected Brendan Johnson, who is worse. Laurie Lightfoot. He is a straight up Marxist. He is a straight up communist. So you do get those kinds of situations as well, where you get someone who is worse. Now we're talking about New York and Mayor Eric Adams, who had been a police officer. So I think a lot of Democrats thought, okay, here we'll have the best of both worlds. We'll have, we, we get to vote Democrat. So we get to virtue signal to ourselves um, by voting Democrat, but we're voting for a law and order guy. Who understands quality of life and the crime issues on the street. Um, He has turned out to be not a great mayor, shall we say. But the problem is, you know, now the, the DOJ and FBI have him in the crosshairs in this investigation. They stop him on the street. They take his phones. The problem is that if he goes away in some way, that the next in line to be mayor in the line of succession in New York is, I think, Jermaine Bowman, who was a. a an, Williams. I'm sorry? Oh, uh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. He is an avowed Marxist. Okay. Yep. So you're going to end up with someone worse. So I guess the question is when we're dealing in these uh, kind of deep blue urban areas. Uh, you know, how do we make sure that we don't slide back because sliding back is is kind of a one-way ticket to Marxism in these in these areas and you've got big money coming in from places like George Soros and elsewhere to try to move it as radically left. So how do we stop that from happening what's happened in Chicago? How do we stop that in places like New York and try to get us back on a track more like San Francisco where the people well Common sense people have left, but you know where where we can actually start waking people up.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I think there's a lot of things working against us. There's a lot of uh, you know infrastructure and institutional support that the left has in these in these deep blue cities that really makes uh, their political position extremely. Uh, powerful and and very concrete. And, you know, you look at a situation like, you know, Chicago. Chicago's a town that's run by the political machines. And, you know, yes, they had a little bit of an upset, but the machine always gets their way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you're dealing with 100 years of, you know, political dominance there by the Democrat machine. I think in many ways Chicago uh, is a lot worse than New York. I think New York, uh, you know, for what it's worth, has had a much more competitive political environment than either Chicago uh, or San Francisco. You know, it wasn't that long ago we had uh, many cycles of uninterrupted uh, Republican control, both at the mayor's office and the governor's office and even in the state Senate. So New York, in many ways, has uh, had a much better political history uh, than either Chicago or San Francisco. And I think it's reflected uh, in the current dynamics as well. And you, you bring up a good uh, or an interesting case with Mayor Adams. You know, he he ran Uh, in the primary sort of as this common sense, moderate, tough on crime Democrat. Uh, You know, he's actually not only just a former cop, he was a former Republican. uh, And, you know, he was actually supported by the political machines as well. And many Republican donors, you know, many big, uh, big movers and shakers, uh, you know, in in the institutional uh, world of Republican politics, even in New York City, were getting behind him because they figured he was the best, uh, shot we had. But at the end of the day, he's still a party guy. He's still a machine Democrat. He came out of the Brooklyn machine, uh, very corrupt. Uh, and, uh, you know, he obviously probably is not nearly as ideologically Marxist and, and dogmatic as someone like uh, uh, Bill de Blasio, Kaiser Wilhelm, as I'll call him, uh, <laughs> who was an out and out, basically a Sandista communist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess in, in, in some respects, it was good to move from a, from a committed ideologue in in de blasio to more of a transactional transactional corrupt uh machine politician like adams because at the end of the day at least you could buy him off at least he's not uh you know committed to something like a like a like a religious uh zealot Uh, But at the same time, you know, you see him starting to, you know, push back against his own party. He was talking about the migrant crisis. He was talking about issues when it came to homelessness and crime. He started to say the right things. And all of a sudden, what have you seen? You've seen the FBI come out and come after him. I mean, he's certainly corrupt. He's certainly uh, probably guilty of some crimes. I'll put it mildly. But it's just so funny that they'll only— go after their own when they start to uh, speak out or or break party ranks as he did. Uh, So I'm sure we'll probably see indictments for him, you know, before he finishes his first or second term. And then, you know, who knows if the left will be able to come back. I will say this. I'll say uh, if someone like Jamani Williams is on the ballot uh, or is becomes mayor, I do think we could have a competitive Mayor's race. I I did work on the last mayor's race. Uh, Curtis Sleeve was the candidate. And I think, you know, we saw some polling, we saw some numbers even back then that showed if it was a Jamani Williams or a more left wing candidate at the top of the ticket, uh, you definitely would have seen a much stronger. Uh, chance for a Republican to win. Now, is that to say that it'd be easy or a walk in the park? Absolutely not. But we have to take these opportunities as they come, and we have to have the infrastructure in place. We have to have organizations in place that when a political opportunity like that arises, when they nominate a candidate too far to the left, that we're ready to activate, we're ready to move. And that's why I think it's important that Republicans do Uh, Build organizations like the New York Young Republican Club and they do community organize, you know, in the in in the uh, in the Obama sense, because if we have that sort of structure, if we have that sort of, uh, you know, uh, institutions, uh, we can actually start to compete. But you're never going to compete with a Democrat machine uh, that, you know, has people uh, hooked from the moment they graduate uh, college or high school to, you know, their first job in, in the city patronage system. And, you know, they, they run every aspect of their life in these inner cities. You know, it's this, this extended political machine of government agencies, of nonprofits, of unions, of even the churches. Uh, that's a very, a uh, hard system to break through, uh, if you're not willing to actually uh, build organizations, uh, build infrastructure, build communities, build networks. Uh, and uh, we're not really doing it in a place like New York. We're not really doing it in, in urban America and blue America. But I do think there's fertile ground there. And I think if we're, if we're strategic, if we're smart, if we're able to understand you know, the types of rhetoric and policies that would appeal uh, to a voter that may not be a traditional Republican voter, but could certainly be won over by more of a populist style messaging. And if we're willing to back that up, Uh, with a little bit of uh, organizational know-how, I think we could have some wins. I mean, if you look at New York, uh, it's not all doom and gloom. We have the largest number of Republican members of the City Council I think in generations. You know, we have mm-hmm. uh, a newly elected Republican in the Bronx of all boroughs. I think we have a Republican now elected in all in four out of the five boroughs, the exception being, of course, Manhattan. Um, but, you know, there's there certainly some trends on the ground that are moving in the right direction. Uh, new York, I think Lee Zeldin and Curtis, you know, they basically got uh, around 30% of the vote here, and I think that's kind of the new floor. I don't think that's the ceiling. I think that's the floor. And at the state level, you know, we had a Republican get 47 percent of the vote. And, and that was uh, a race that certainly should not have gone our way. We had a lot of things working against us. Um, but I think it goes to show that there's fertile ground here and we shouldn't write off a place like New York. And I think it's great that someone like President Trump is is looking at New York very seriously and understands that, you know, the needle can be moved here and we should not, uh, you know, cede any ground to the left, have them play defense on their Uh, so-called home turf, which is New York and New York City.
1: Yeah, and have them play defense and have to pour a lot of time and resources into states and areas where they thought it was a gimme, right? Um, You know, uh, one other big issue, I think, and I've been talking about it on this show a lot, which gives us a providential opportunity, gives us a real opening with traditionally Democrat voters and specifically minority voters, Is the illegal immigration question. Now you've talked about Eric Adams in New York dealing with the illegal uh, situation very, very hard. I mean, I look, Adams is not a magician either. I I didn't vote for him. I voted for Curtis. Um, But, you know, he's getting this massive influx. Well, okay, you are a sanctuary city. Okay, so there are things you can do to change that status, to block right uh, this massive flow of illegals into the city. But I do think that there is a real opportunity here for the Republicans to attract more and more black voters and Latino voters. You're seeing videos from New York, from Chicago, from Detroit, from Atlanta, from San Francisco of Democrats screaming at their Democrat city councils, their Democrat mayors, because this illegal immigrant tsunami. has flooded their communities, draining all the resources that were meant for them, and now is being taken away so that they are not no longer the priority communities. It's now illegal immigrants. So they are furious, and rightfully so. How do we, in, in cities, deep blue areas, Gavin, how do we exploit that opening in the best way?
2: You know, it's uh, it's actually been a uh, an interesting development politically. And you've seen it. You mentioned it with a lot of these town halls. You've seen a lot of, you know, rank and file Democrats really get upset and and riled up over this, this, this out of control migrant crisis. And I think, look, I think these Democrat locales, these Democrat um, municipal governments, state governments, you know, their their entire sort of uh, foundation, you know, with their social welfare system, with their with their handouts, with this entire elaborate kind of left-wing bureaucracy, it it really is, it it, it runs on a tightrope. And if if you flood that system with hundreds of thousands of migrants like you have in a place like New York City, it really pushes that system to the brink. And if that system's pushed to the brink, All of these constituency groups that have traditionally relied on that system and paid into that system and voted for that system, all of a sudden they're not getting what they used to get out of it, and it really starts to shatter at their coalition. And I do think they have a very broad coalition, and I think in many ways it was held together momentarily through this sort of visceral hatred of of Trump. Uh, but for a long period of time, I mean, it, it's been able to run pretty smoothly. But I think this migrant crisis is really reaching a boiling point, And I think you're going to start to see different factions and different groups within the Democrat Party begin to actually fight each other and get it and, and, and go at each other. You're going to see, you know, and we've seen degrees of that, even if you look at the mayor, Mayor Adams a uh, primary if you look at the breakdown by district and by you know uh, um, you know ED and and, and et cetera on the maps, there was a very clear divide between his base, which was much more of a black working class base in Brooklyn, compared to some of the other candidates who were much more cemented in sort of this upper middle class, upper income, sort of white liberal on the Upper West Side. And and those views uh, between these two groups are starting to come to, to a head, and you're starting to see certainly some division. Uh, I think Republicans can can play this, but they have to also be realistic. I don't necessarily think every single one of these disgruntled Democrats is going to be a pickup for us. But what we could do is we could also dampen turnout and turnout is almost as important as the actual uh, people that get to the ballot. So if you just suppress turnout, if you can keep some of these people at home because they just have very low enthusiasm, uh, then all of a sudden the electorate has changed and you're dealing with a much more favorable environment uh, for a Republican or for a conservative. So I think that's a way we should really view it. Uh, and I think Democrats, you know, to their credit, they understand this. That's why they've really aggressively pushed uh, certain voting laws uh, that would really make it very easy for these low enthusiasm voters on the Democrat side to vote without much effort, whether it's mail in or proxy voting or whatever it is. Uh, and you saw even this last cycle, uh, the Democrats sent a ballot out to every registered Democrat just to mail it in and, you know, with the postage and everything included, um, you know whether it was legal or not is another question. But it just goes to show they realize that they're starting to have an enthusiasm issue, and there's going to be an enthusiasm gap. And you know they may have these you know massive block of voters, but a lot of them you know aren't exactly ecstatic about their side anymore. They're not rushing to the polls. They're not really motivated. Uh, so they really have to get the votes and the ballots to them to make it work. So I think they're starting to feel a little bit of the pressure because of this. Uh, and look, I think this migrant crisis is is perfect because again, it's so visceral. It's just like the homelessness crisis or the trash crisis or the crime. You can't just escape it. It's not a number on a uh, you know on a spreadsheet. You know, it's not the debt. It's not like a financial statistic. You know, you see it. You, you know, I was speaking at a South Brooklyn Republican Club, and they shut a local high school down. To house migrants and you know people were outraged it, it it hits very close to home it's not something far away it's not at the border in texas it's, it's hitting them in their own communities and they see it on the street they see the hotels being turned into effectively these these open air methadone clinics and these you know these these migrant shelters i mean drugs are everywhere crime is on the rise their communities are, are going to, to, to hell the property values are decreasing uh so this is the time for Republicans to really lean into their core vision and their core values. And I think what I run into in in terms of problems uh, here in New York is a lot of the Republicans, you know, they're really, you know, kind of these uh, rhinos, and they're really led by their consultants and other grifters. They basically think, you know, they have this mentality of 30, 40 years ago, they say, oh, to do well in New York, you really need to, you know, you need to run to the center, you need to even run to the left, you need to be a a liberal or moderate Republican, you need to be an anti-Trump Republican, you need to, uh, you know, really just kind of be democrat light. And I think that is the absolute worst advice you could give in a situation like this with the migrant crisis. I think now more than ever, people are looking for some strong leadership. They're looking for people with some conviction, with some backbone to come out and say, no, uh, you know, we're going to close the border. We have to deport these, these migrants. We have to get this situation under control and they're looking for strong rhetoric, strong leadership, because we have some serious uh, problems facing this city state and country. And they're not looking for this milk toast. Uh, kind of limp-wristed uh, approach uh, that many Republicans have taken over the years because they're so scared of what the media is going to call them. They're so scared of being attacked or or lambasted. Uh, I think Republican voters, and I think persuadable voters, more, more importantly, are actually looking for an alternative. And, you know, if they wanted a Democrat, they have plenty of options, and they can certainly vote for a Democrat who wants to keep the borders open. They don't need a Republican who's going to come out and, and and, you know, kind of talk, you know, Half on one side of their mouth and half on the other and minced words they're looking for someone to come out and boldly state uh, the obvious and speak truth to power and I think that's honestly the most simple advice that I could give any you know potential candidates or potential uh, you know Republican leaders in this city is you know lean into this stuff and, and actually you know a message. Uh, you know, the, the, the values and principles you supposedly hold dear, whether it's on the border, whether it's on crime, whether it's on the economy, you know, don't run away from it because people are looking for an alternative. They're not looking for a Democrat light. Uh, with an r next to their name,
1: yeah, that is exactly right because if they're going to vote Democrat, they want a true blooded Democrat. They're not looking for some Xerox copy of a Democrat, so the the contrast has to be real, and if you are a Republican running in these areas, it's all about quality of life, law and order. Right. It's about, it's about your taxes. It's your ability, about your ability to walk down the street without fear of getting mugged. Uh, Direct quality of life issues. And, and if any Republican candidates speak directly to those people about those issues, They actually have a standing chance of persuading people to change their vote. Very difficult, you know, and I I have this conversation on this show all the time, Gavin. Political, because politics is now everywhere and it's infused everything, political values are the dominant set of values for pretty much everybody, right? You can't watch the NFL without politics in your face. It's just everywhere in the culture, in the politics, in big tech, in everything. So to ask someone to change their vote, you're actually asking them to change who they are. Their identity that they're so deeply invested in. So it takes time and patience and compassion to deal with lifelong Democrats to try to educate them and get them to see things in a different way. But once they hit a wall and, and they feel like they're, they're, um, that they're unsafe in their own communities, well, then you have a real opening to get to them. And I think that's where we are. So there is some hope. Um, can you talk to us about The New York Young Republican uh, Club, because you have taken this thing that was essentially dormant uh, for a long time and breathed incredible new life into it. You put on a gala every year uh, in the fall, and President Trump came last year, and he spoke and and did an amazing job. And for those of you who want to see what Gavin looks like, there is uh, go to his Twitter page, um, and you will see this fantastic picture, I think, of last year's uh, gala in New York of you sitting with Donald Trump, and both of you have these incredible smiles on your face. So you've taken this moribund organization reinvigorated it, and now actually beginning to do the real hard work, or I guess you have now for a couple of years, but doing the hard work on the ground to community organize and try to reach people in New York City with our message. So talk to us a little bit about what you guys are doing at the New York Young Republican Club and who can join as a member and the kind of work that you're up to.
2: Absolutely well thank you for all that all that high praise and um, you know it's it's been a uh, it's been a long journey I took this over when I was uh, 25 uh, in 2019 and uh, you know I uh, basically found a sort of a derelict organization it had a very good history a great legacy you know it's the oldest uh, Republican club in the country it goes back over a hundred years uh, many. Ah, uh, big names have come through the club over the years. You know, many more liberal, moderate old Rockefeller Republicans, but it was certainly a very respectable institution in its heyday. Uh, a lot of members at some clubhouses, you know they they had their big balls and gala at the Waldorf. and uh, you know it was really the place to be uh, if you were Republican in New York at one point in time, but uh, I definitely fell in some hard times, and it was really left kind of to die, uh, but I certainly, you know, I, I truly do believe the things I'm saying, and I believe in, you know, the, the organization building, the community building. I think that's super important. I think Republicans need to do more of it, and uh, this was a perfect vessel to do that, and, uh, you know, we, we took that brand, we took that history, and we actually brought some fire and, and put some real, you know, uh, force of, uh, you know, some force behind it and turned it into a real institution once more. We professionalized it. We, set, we certainly turned it to the right uh, you know, when we before we took it over, this was certainly still a very rhino liberal club. Uh, and that, again, was the was the consensus thinking that if you wanted to run an organization like this or be a Republican in New York, you had to be very, very, uh, uh, you know, liberal or moderate to do so. And we totally threw that sentiment out and we proved our, our thesis correct. We said, no, people are looking uh, for real, you know, strong leaders. And we built a club uh, that was, you know completely pro-Trump. We were not afraid to say so. Uh, and this was during his first term as well. And uh, and then even after. And uh, we came out as, you know, you know, hardcore conservatives and populists. And if you build it, they will come. And, you know, we had great speakers. We've had great socials. We've had great parties. We've really built an organization holistically. And uh, I think a lot of times, you know, when you, you deal with these organizations, you know, ancillary to the Republican Party, a lot of the, the, the party heads and the party bosses, they want you to just be very single-focused, single-track mind, they only think about, you know, get me free labor, get me volunteers, uh, and that's it. But, you know, our model has been very different. Our model is if you really want to get people that are going to knock on doors, who are going to phone bank, who are going to canvas, who are going to show up for rallies and protests, you need to build a holistic organization. You need to have a place for them to socialize, a place for them to meet people, a place for them to hear great speakers so they feel like they're actually part of something. And I think a lot of these Republican parties, you know, they only exist on paper. A lot of these organizations, they don't really exist. They exist maybe a few days before the election. And then they're never you never hear from them. There's no events. There's no meetings. There's no way to meet people. You know, you get an email from them asking for money and then, you know, you hear from them right before the election. That's it. You know, we wanted something that actually exists. Uh, you know, in real life, where people feel like they're a part of something, that they're a real member of an organization, and because of that, you know, our growth blossomed. Uh, we got a clubhouse for the first time in sixty years. We pushed over twelve hundred dues-paying members. Uh, you know, we have these large galas now at Cipriani Wall Street. I mean, we're an entirely volunteer-run organization. None of us take a paycheck, including myself. And our gala at Cipriani Wall Street had over a thousand people. It's the largest probably the most exquisite venue in the city of New York. That was a $750,000 affair. I mean, putting that on uh, was no small feat, but I think it shows uh, the great lengths that we've gone to really build out this organization, our committees and everything we're doing and and all the events and programming we do throughout the year. And and beyond that, I mean, we've built out a political force. I mean, we have gotten uh, Republican members of the city council elected. We've staffed their offices. Uh, we've elected other state and even federal officials, and we've staffed their offices accordingly and we're really building out sort of a talent pool of young talent uh, to either be staffers or potential candidates themselves. Uh, and we've done great work on the ground. I mean even in the grassroots level, you look at some of the largest protests uh, in New York. we organized the, the the protests to save the Teddy Roosevelt statue outside of the Museum of Natural History. We organized the first, Uh, protest against the covid mandates outside of gracie mansion we organized the first protest uh, that filled an entire city block uh, after the first trump indictments from the uh, corrupt alvin bragg Uh, so we really are boots on the ground whether it's protesting rallying door knocking doing these deployments for candidates and then also we have a very good uh, you know healthy uh, you know Bit of you know social camaraderie that comes with it, so uh, that's the kind of organization building we need to see replicated across the country. Uh, our membership are primarily in their uh, mid to late twenties, early to mid thirties. It's a young professional organization, but. The age range goes from 18 to 40. We have associate members over that as well, uh, but that's the core of our group: young professionals moving up in their respective fields. Whether they're they're young lawyers, young financiers, young people in media or advertising, uh, or in tech, uh, these are people that have you know real world private sector jobs, uh, and they're basically you know putting a lot on the line to you know be part of an organization like us because they could be canceled at any moment, they could be fired at any moment for their political beliefs. Uh, but just goes to show that they're smart, they're committed, uh, and they're the types of people that we need to keep on our side, because many of them, you know, they move to New York, they come from a conservative household, Republican household, and they may sway if they're brought into an environment where they don't have any kind of support uh, to maintain those beliefs. And uh, in addition to that, in addition to continuing to cultivate people's political beliefs upon moving to New York or being in New York, uh, we've brought on tons of Democrats, like you see we were discussing before. I mean, the amount of people that I meet regularly in the club that used to be lifelong Democrats, that used to be, you know, default Democrat voters, uh, the same kind of people we were discussing, who have finally woken up and, and changed their views. I mean, it was, it was an astronomical number of people, particularly after the lockdowns and the COVID tyranny in, in New York City, particularly after this crime wave and homelessness epidemic and the migrant crisis, were constantly bringing in new people to the fold. Uh, and we're really building the party apparatus at the at the block by block level so uh being able to have the president uh, attend our gala our hundred and eleventh annual gala uh was a huge honor. I think it was a testament to uh all the hard work that you know the team had put in over the years and building it up to that point uh you know some people hate us for it in the in the app in the party apparatus because we certainly uh you know we don't mince words we don't hold back and uh you know we'll we'll endorse in a primary we'll make our voices be heard we're not just gonna you know, take orders from the party bosses and and be docile, we're going to be very actively involved, pushing for the best candidate, the most conservative uh, candidate that can win, and uh, fight for our beliefs and principles. And uh, that rubs feathers both from Democrats and, believe it or not, from many rhinos uh, who don't like our successes and don't like what we're building out. But this is the exact kind of thing we need to do uh, to turn a place like New York City around. And uh, we're seeing some successes uh, we're beginning to see some successes, uh, but you know we we play at the national level as well. You know we had uh, you know two buses full of people go up to New Hampshire to help with the primary there. We had people going out to Iowa to do phone banking. Uh, so you know we're we're playing at a, a and at the national stage in many ways we're getting a lot of headlines we're getting a lot of press uh but that's the kind of thing you need to do to bring build an organization bring new people in um and it's been a uh, it's been a great journey and we're happy to uh, continue to do it
1: all right gavin i'm going to ask you to please stand by so much more to cover with you on the other side sit tight all right we're back with gavin wax you're doing exactly what we, have been, we should have been doing for decades, which is mirroring the left and how they organize. You know, I, I've been talking about this throughout my entire career. We need to mirror the left, and that doesn't mean engage in illegal activity and violence the way they do and stealing elections, but it does mean mirror the left in terms of organization, You know, there's a reason why Barack Obama came up through the community organizing pipeline, Saul Alinsky, that the left has long understood that real change happens at the local level first. And our side for decades has been focused on the international level and the national level, understandably so. But while our focus was way out there, the left's focus was local. It was in urban areas, suburban areas. It was George Soros financing DAs and mayor's races around the country. And everybody was like, why is he so focused on DAs? Well, now you know. (laughs) So we need organizations like the New York Young Republican Club to mirror what the left is doing on the ground and reaching people where they live. You know, when Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local, everybody kind of, you know, on our side laughed at that or dismissed it. But he was telling you exactly how they play the game and you cannot defeat them according to the rules of the game unless you're in the game on the local uh, local side and that is exactly what you're doing Gavin.
2: Correct and and I think you said it brilliantly. I mean a lot of these tactics that the left employs are ideologically neutral. I mean you could be a conservative and and do these things. I mean they've just been much more uh, methodical, and they've turned the art of politics and power into a science. And they've been uh, extremely ruthless, and and they fight for keeps. They fight to win. And a part of me respects it. You know, I don't agree with them, but I wish our side uh, fought as ferociously as they did, and yes. as methodical, and uh, you know, uh, and uh, you know, clever as them. And and you know, we need to be doing a lot of the things that they are doing to really build out our political uh, and electoral chances. And I, I just see a lot of apathy to do it. And, and, you know, maybe there's part of that is sort of the psychological and cultural makeup of Republicans, that they're more averse to doing it. I don't know how deep in the weeds we can get on that front. But ultimately, uh, you know, if we want to, we're, we're, we're in an existential fight for the country. There's some serious issues. I mean, you alluded to some of it with what George Soros is doing with the sort of breakdown of law and order with these weaponized district attorneys. I mean, this is really uh, dangerous stuff. And that's just part of a, of a very large puzzle of problems facing the country, and we're not going to beat it by the sort of typical and traditional uh, Republican mode of politics, which frankly is very short-term and even short-sighted. I mean, I think a lot of Republicans... They think only in terms of the closest election cycle. But the Democrats, they play the long game. They play the generational fight. You know, they're doing these Fabian socialist style takeovers of institutions and countries as a whole. You know, the, 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 the real radical leftists, you know, they're sitting there saying, how do we turn corporate boardrooms in 50 years to be, you know, what, woke ideologues? How do we slowly take over, you know, the FBI, the CIA? How do we implant our people that may not be there in one election cycle but in a generation they'll be running you know the college campuses and uh, these different institutions you know republicans in many cases they're just thinking you know how is our q1 fundraising how are we going to do this next cycle uh, and that's you're you're never going to you're never going to beat the left playing that game it's just going to slowly erode and I mean, ultimately, what have we seen over the last few decades? We've seen this slow erosion of our society, the stagnation, and the left has, you know, slowly and and more aggressively cemented their power, and they've become more open. You know, we we talked about, you know, the Democrat Party changing over the years. I mean, just look at Obama. Just look at Biden. You know, look at how they sounded and talked uh, prior to 2008, and look how they sound and talk now. I mean, they're completely different in terms of their rhetoric, because they realize in in that short period of time—that wasn't that long ago Uh, The entire country has changed politically, uh, culturally, demographically. And because of that, they're able to get away uh, with a more with an ever more uh, radical uh, left wing agenda. And uh, we need to wake up to that because, you know, the longer this goes on for, the harder it's going to be to defeat and and roll back. And, uh, you know, if you want to see the future of the country as a whole, you know, that's why a place like New York or Chicago or San Francisco are very important to study because the future of the country as a whole it's urban America. I mean, look at the uh, the urban political landscape in this country. That's coming soon to a suburb near you, to a rural area near you, to a red state near you. Uh, if we don't stop it, and uh, you know, we need to be fighting on all fronts. We can't just cede ground to the left. You know, they'll spend. The left has no problem dumping millions upon millions of dollars into a race in, say, South Carolina or Texas, just to keep us on our toes. Right. Uh, meanwhile, we're just you know trying to you know keep this very small. And dwindling electoral map you know look at President Trump you know he crushed he he broke the blue wall he appealed to union voters he appealed to working-class voters who the Democrat Party has left behind and you know we recently had a meeting with with some leaders uh, union leaders here in New York and they all told us you know off the record they said you know we love President Trump you know we want to support him you know that's the kind of thinking we need reaching out to these non-traditional Republican uh, voting cohorts and and winning them over uh, because you can build a more a dynamic political coalition that can actually win governing majorities. And then the most important thing of all, you know, we've only talked about the first half of the equation. The second half of the equation is once we're in power, we have to use it. We have to wield it. We have to effectuate our policy ends. We need to reward our constituents, punish our enemies, and get through our policy agenda because that's that's politics. And if you don't do that, you're not playing politics right. The Democrats get in and they reward their constituency groups. They reward the people that are going to vote for them more. And, and who votes for them? Well, it's, you know, if you bring in a bunch of migrants, they're going to vote for you. If you incentivize a bunch of, you know, people to get even more higher education and uh, continue to rent their whole lives and have a ton of cats, they're going to vote for you. So they incentivize those <laughs> groups. And I think on our side, you know, who votes for Republicans? you got families. You've got uh, you've got business owners. you got homeowners. You know, we need to incentivize those groups. We need to encourage those groups. Uh, to continue to grow and, and, and prosper. And because of that, that's how you'll win the game. But I think a lot of times Republicans get into office... They don't reward their friends. They don't punish their enemies and they don't push through an agenda that uh, actually is what they ran on.
1: Yeah, exactly. Sense. Tell that to Republican members of Congress. That's the message there. Um, in our final moments here, Gavin, there was a recent couple of days ago uh, article in Rolling Stone about you and Vish Burra and the others who are reinvigorating the Republican America First movement in New York City. And they meant it as a hit piece, but you came out looking fabulous fabulous.
2: Well, our strategy has always been, you know, we're in a big media market. New York is the center of uh, the press and media in this country. And we've always said, you know, all press is good press. We lean into it, we play it, and we're unabashedly ourselves. And uh, I think, you know, we've made headlines. And because of that, it's helped our growth. It's helped us cement our position. And, uh, you know, this latest piece is is part of a long uh, string of pieces that have made attempts to come after us. You know, we've certainly been Uh, me personally and institutionally as the club itself, we've been the victims of some pretty egregious hit pieces, you know, lies, smears, defamation. That's the name of the game. But, you know, you have to be able to weather that storm. You have to have thick skin. You have to be able to push through it. I think a lot of our elected officials on our side, you know, they get a little uh, squeamish when it comes to a hit piece. But, you know, we're able to turn it on its head and I think come out looking pretty good. And I think a lot of these these reporters, as left-wing as they are, when they start following our group, they have this sort of begrudging respect for us. They start to kind of almost like us in a way they struggle to write bad things about us. You know, we've had a lot of these reporters that have been, you know, they, 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 they come to our events, they, they meet with us and they it's, we're not what they expect to meet. Uh, you know, they're, we're not, we're not, Fitting their stereotype in many ways, but listen, I think press is a very powerful tool and weapon, and uh, I think we can use it and wield it in the right way, even if you know the press is generally against us and and Republicans in general. And this piece, I think, was 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 part of it. You know, it humanizes us; it puts us in a different light; it 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 shows the effectiveness of the organization, even if they don't really want to admit it. And uh, listen, you're not getting. You're not getting pieces written about you either positively or negatively uh, unless you're doing something right, unless you're making some enemies, unless you're ruffling some feathers and unless you're actually relevant. You know, Uh, you know, a lot of organizations, a lot of people, they they don't get any press uh, and it's because they're not doing anything. They're not relevant. So we're constantly shaking things up. We're we're grabbing headlines. And that's part of the strategy. That's how you make a club like this work in a big city. You need to get headlines. We've done that over the years. And people find us because of these headpieces. People find us because of the press we get. And they said, oh, I had no idea a group like yours existed. I read about you and, you know, and such and such. And I saw you on such and such. And now I'm a member. So, uh, you know, they're they're giving us free media. They're giving us, you know, free advertising. Uh, we're going to take it. Uh, Trump used the same strategy in, in 16 and uh, worked brilliantly and I think uh, we're going to continue to do the same with Rolling Stone or whatever other outlet it happens to be.
1: Well, I I love the article and I texted you. (laughs) I I just loved it. they wanted to come at you but you know when they a lot of these people not all of them but when they get to know you and see how nice and normal we are and and how we have you know our, the best of intentions and a genuine love for our city our state our country want to bring it back they they have a little bit of a tougher time skewering you I mean Rolling Stone tried but uh, it ended up you ended up looking so fierce Gavin so uh, kudos to you Um before we let you go one final question for you we talk about a lot about new york city here and your efforts to turn the city and and, and by extension the state around and by extension the country around what about gavin wax for mayor
2: <laughs> oh man that'd be something uh listen i'm i'm just playing it by year uh you know i'm happy to run this organization you know live my life do what i can uh you know i don't have a you know a single track focus on running for office um I'm not one of those guys. If, if an opportunity ever arises where I think there's a there's a real shot and, and there's a way to, you know, get in there and make a difference. I'd absolutely consider it. But, you know, uh, for now, just trying to, you know, uh, you know, build up my myself personally, my career, my personal life. And, you know, I definitely think, you know, uh, there's a lot of organizations that, you know, they have a lot of focus on youth. And we're we're obviously a youth focused organization. Uh, but We're always going to support the candidate. Uh, regardless of their age, on the merits, who, who, who's the most qualified for the position, who's the most committed uh, in terms of their principles. We're not just going to support uh, a candidate who happens to be younger just because they're younger. Uh, we'll support the, uh, the old curmudgeon if the old curmudgeon has something to bring to the table. And uh, as far as me personally, uh, right now i got no plans uh, to run for anything, but I'm definitely going to continue to fight uh, locally at the state level, at the national level, Uh, to push things forward, push things in the right direction, and uh, hopefully we'll have a big win this November. And uh, then, you know, who knows? The sky's the limit.
1: Well, we need you for sure, and we are so grateful to you, Gavin, and I hope that other young Republican clubs and and Republican clubs, MAGA clubs in other deep blue areas are seeking you out and talking to you about how they can reinvigorate uh, their membership and their organizations and do what you guys are doing so well and so effectively in New York, because we need to replicate what you're doing across the country. So I hope that is the case. And if not, then you should proactively reach out to them if they exist. And if not, try to identify people in these cities and try to get this uh, moving, because this is the only way we're going to turn around these cities, states and the country. God bless you, Gavin, for what you're doing. You're absolutely incredible.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. God bless you as well. And um, I really appreciate you having me on.
1: Of course, it's our great pleasure. Gavin Wax, he is the seventy sixth president of the New York Young Republicans Club. You can check that out at on twitter slash x at n y y r c so please go check them out. What is the website for the New York Young Republicans? Gavin? It
2: NYYRC.com. is, uh, is n y y r c dot com that's two ys and uh, you go there. you can join seventy dollars a year. Uh, anyone who's in the metropolitan area of New York, Long Island, New Jersey, you know, the Hudson Valley, parts of Connecticut, the five boroughs you can join. Uh, we have a wide area. We do events across the five boroughs, even outside uh, of the five boroughs. And we'd love to have you join and become a member of our organization.
1: Fantastic. So please go check them out on the Web and on social media. Check out his work at townhall.com. Check him out on X uh, and True Social at Gavin Wax and his website, GavinWax.com. Gavin, you are the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Really big show today, guys, right? Huge if I dare say. Thank you for being here, for checking out all of our great sponsors. We all really appreciate that. That's what keeps the show afloat. So we appreciate you guys. Uh, Okay, have a good start to your week. I'm going to see you right back here on Thursday. We're going to be joined by Dean Kane for a phenomenal conversation. Okay, so stay safe and well, and I will see you then. This episode of the Monica Crowley podcast was produced by Bayhockel Entertainment, LLC.